Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guests today are Irving Chavez, Chief Impact Officer with Just in Time for Foster Youth located in San Diego, California, Ben McBride, the Executive Director of I Poor Life in Springfield, Missouri, and Erica Anderson, the founder of We Inspire Greatness in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast series. I want to give you all a chance to introduce yourselves and share a little bit about what it is that you do. So why don't we go ahead and go around the room and I'll ask you to share your name, your role, what is it that you do at your organization, whatever you'd like to share to provide a little brief introduction of yourself would be great. So Irving, I'll hand things off to you first. Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Irving Chavez. I am the Chief Impact Officer at an organization called Just in Time for Foster Youth here in San Diego. We serve foster youth from the ages of 18 up to their 27th birthday, pretty much transitioning to the adult world and providing what a caring family would. Excellent. Thank you very much. Ben, we'll go to you next. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ben McBride. I'm with iPoor Life out of Springfield, Missouri. I'm the executive director there and focusing similarly on a mission to Irving's in that we are hoping to provide life strengths, life skills, life lessons to aging out youth so that they can successfully transition into adulthood. Wonderful. Yeah, that's why we're all here. Absolutely. So Erica, I'll ask you to go and share a little bit about yourself, please. Good afternoon. My name is Erica Anderson. I am the founder and CEO of Inspiring Greatness. And what we do is facilitate workshops, offer inspirational journals to discover more self-awareness. We also facilitate workforce readiness courses just to make sure young adults and youth are equipped for the real world and the workforce. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. I am really excited about our topic today. We've come together to have a conversation about helping youth build decision-making skills, which is really important skill for young people. Unfortunately, I think it's one of those things that we neglect to think of as something that you can build those skills. We just, I think a lot of times just assume young people will make the right decisions. And well, no, we all need to learn that and how to do that. So we're going to have a conversation and I want to ask a question and whoever would like to answer first, please do. Is decision-making something that can be taught? And if so, What teaching model or approaches do you use to teach decision-making? So I open it up to the group. Who would like to answer first? I can go first. So I definitely think decision-making can be taught. I think effective decision-making was not taught. So I think a lot of kids look for what's in front of them, some more of their examples, and that's how they learn, you know, decision-making through life experiences and what they see. The approaches I take with children and the youth that I work with is learning the difference between a choice, you know, a decision and a commitment. So when they get those three down packed, then I think decision making becomes more of an internal, an internal battle versus what they've been taught or what they've seen. Hmm. I like that. And maybe we can get into that a, a little bit more later, the differences between choice, decision and commitment. So I've made a note to come back around to that. So Ben or Irving, would you like to answer the question about whether, uh, yeah, go ahead. Follow up on Erica. I definitely think that a decision-making is 
something that can be taught, especially taught by example. I'll just be honest with you. One of the reasons that I jumped into this position at iPoor Life was because in my upbringing, I had good role models, mentors that I observed, that I used as examples, that I saw live their life day to day. And as I grew up and through teenage years, college years, and now into my professional life, I look back and realize how important those examples were because there's many times in my life specifically where if I didn't have that grounded foundation and you know what positive outlooks and positive decision-making skills were, that I could have easily made a different decision that would have completely changed the trajectory of my life and where I am today. Absolutely. I agree with that. Irving. Yeah. So I will start off a little bit different. And I do agree with what Ben has just mentioned. I actually was in care for 15 years. And for me, one of the most interesting things that I learned about myself is that decision making is taught by example, but sometimes without people realizing it. So for me, a lot of the decisions that were being made were not taking me into account. They were being made for me. So I was getting used to people making decisions for me. So in the transition years, what ended up happening is I was relying on others to make decisions for me, to protect me. So I didn't feel that sense of empowerment to make decisions that were best for me. So I was making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And this is my experience, obviously, this is not everybody's, because the sense of decision making was not in my hands. So I was observing how others were making those decisions and how they were affecting me. So I was giving the power to others. And then I had to transition that and make sure that every choice and every decision that was made, I was a stakeholder in it instead of being somebody that was being impacted by it. Right. Right. You know, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I would just agree. Because if we think, you know, from birth to, well, I'll say 18, you know, our decisions are given to us, you know, 80% of the time. And it's like, if you're younger, you know what you want, like you still aren't able to say, well, this is not a good decision for me. You're just, you're told after 18, you're like, oh my gosh, like I don't have anybody else to tell me now I have to actually make this decision. Am I making the right or the wrong one? So I'll just piggyback Mm -hmm. it. I think it's something that is common in foster care. I also aged out of foster care and I remember the same experience. I wasn't in as long, but you're right. I mean, every decision, what you do, where you go, whether or not you can have a job that's decided for you by the folks who are in charge of you in the foster care system. I know in some cases it's liability, in some cases it's protection, in some cases it's just a lack of wanting to try to teach those skills. There are probably a lot of different reasons for that. I'll ask the group as a follow-up to that is, you know, how do we help adults understand that allowing youth to make decisions and sometimes make mistakes is healthy? Yeah, I think that that's what, you know, if we're talking about the teaching model or approach that iPoor Life uses, it's definitely a recognition that youth have to be given that power back, like Irving was saying, and that Lynn, you kind of followed up on. What we do here is we provide a safe space for them to do that. They're given a lot of different opportunities, whether they're educationally related, workforce readiness related, just health, well-being, that types of things. We touch upon a lot of different topics, 
but give them a safe space to make a decision that's not going to have a negative or consequential impact on their life. So as far as a model or approach, I don't know that we have any defined model, but it's just a mindset that let's just rally behind them. We're not going to react negatively to any quote unquote bad decision. We're going to reinforce good decisions. But then if a different decision needs to be made, let's talk about it. Let's examine it. Let's kind of debrief over it and see what we should do differently next time. It's almost like if you were to, to put you know, the staff or the social worker or the case manager in the seat of a child or a former foster youth and see how their life has been navigated and all the decisions that have been made for them, and then they can actually see it and understand it and then maybe apply it to their life and then see where maybe where the disconnect could be. And like, you know, if you grew up and everything was made for you, but you weren't allowed to make a, you know, a mistake, then how would that look for your life? So I think having them see that actually and apply it to their life and say, if you went left, you know, what would happen? If you went right, what would happen? And maybe if they saw that in their perspective, in their eyes, that they would get a better feel of how the youth feels. The term that came to mind with what Irving was describing is learned helplessness. Young people who have decisions made for them constantly and they don't have a chance, like Irving was saying, relies on the adults to make all the decisions. And so that's, in a sense, that's a type of learned helplessness. Irving, I'm curious to know, if I could throw it back to you, when did you realize that this power or authority to make decisions for yourself had been taken away? And then what did you do as you grew and developed to kind of take that power back? Yeah. So to Lynn's point about that learned helplessness, one of the parts of my life that was a turning point is when you make decisions in your life, obviously, you're, I mean, for me, it was my teenage years. And then my early adulthood, I was making choices and decisions that were not educated decisions, right? They were coming from places of probably survival mode. So my actual thought process was more, what's going to give me provide me satisfaction, the soonest, right? The quickest, like that quick turnaround, because that had always been my experience. I had never planned for the future, because my future had been planned for me. What I realized is that I was making these choices, who I was around, what work I was choosing, what education path I was taking, whatever that may be. But it would only last for so little. The satisfaction, the stimulus of that decision would only last so long. And then I would get the consequences and I had nobody else to blame. So once you have nobody else to quote unquote blame or put the blame on, you start internalizing that. It starts turning to you of, Now I do have that control. I'm the one that's causing this in my life. I think it would be easy for me to say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's how my life started. That's how my life is going to end. But I think realizing if I do X, Y happens, I needed to do Z instead of X. And I think that was something that came about when I was no longer in survival mode. I wasn't just trying to find my housing or see what my next meal was or get that good grade and at the same time still go to work at a graveyard shift, right? So my brain power was at its full capacity because I was being nurtured and I was nurturing myself. And the decisions that I needed to make were already inside me, in my brain and my body and everything that I wanted. So it just came out when I wasn't surviving anymore. I was in the direction of getting myself to thrive in life. That's what really changed the way I started making decisions. I don't know if that answered your question, Ben. Yeah, no, that's great. It's almost like the necessity is the mother of invention concept. When you need to, 
you know, buckle down and figure it out. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. We're always in this state of needing something. And I think it's easy to set a goal to need to go to school, to need to go to work, to need to be in a relationship, whatever that may be. But once those things are already taken care of, the only need you have is to satisfy yourself and take care of yourself. And because that's not something that we practice so often, it's always somebody else taking care of us. And to Erica's point, that is normal childhood. But for somebody in the foster care system, it's normal childhood development and also the foster care system. So it's a two like set way of experiencing the, well, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be, that learned helplessness. And then coming around and saying, well, no, that's not useful for me anymore. This is useful for me. Right. I have a question. Do you think if, since the decisions are all made, you know, like, do you think a lot of the decisions that former foster you deal with comes out of like rebellion? You know, like, hey, I know that every decision has been really made for me. Even though I may feel like it's a good decision, I'm going to choose the opposite because I've been told all of my life what to do, how to be, how to act, and so forth. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's like I said, it's part of the development, right? Of any teenager, it's going to be rebellious, even if the decisions made for them or with them are going to be beneficial to them. It's just part of human nature. But I think what exacerbates it is that most of that experience is in the aspect of protecting the person or what people believe is protecting the person. So the sense of empowerment for the individual is not being nurtured from that early on. So a part of us does feel, well, I'm being protected because I'm damaged, right? I'm about to break. And if somebody doesn't protect me, or if this action's not being taken, then I'm just done. But if we approach each other in the sense of saying, well, no, I do believe that you are a whole individual and you do have the creativity to understand this decision that's being made, like sitting with the person and understand the decision or the choice, or the action that was taken, just like any other like nurturing adult would explain to their younger siblings or their children. Just give an explanation of what's actually occurring, because we are very aware of our surroundings. Especially in those early years, we are absorbing everything that's around us, but we're rationalizing it with our own experiences, when we can have that reliance on what is actually happening to those adults around us. So that allows us to feel whole again, to feel like we are a whole individual instead of this broken thing that we don't know how to even express why we're broken. Interesting you kind of bring it up. This peripherally relates. We were able to host Josh Ship earlier this week for what we called our Nurture Thrive Repeat luncheon. And, and one of the things that I think that kind of gets maybe ignored, not necessarily industry-wide, but just on the topic of talking about decision-making One of the things that he mentioned, Josh had mentioned, was that trauma doesn't recognize hypocrisy. And I think that that goes into a lot of what we're talking about here as far as decision making. You know, the trauma is a mental health issue that prevents a youth that has experienced that from making decisions or even collaborating amongst themselves what a good and bad decision is. And so I think that there's something there to that that we have to take that into consideration as well, always, you know, that trauma-based care. And when we're approaching how to distinguish good and bad decisions with the youth that we're serving. Right. Well, how do we go about, aside from role modeling, which we've discussed, 
How do we go about sitting down and helping young people learn how to make decisions? So for example, how do we provide them with the ability to understand what the consequences, the cause and effect of their decisions will be, and the importance of the cause and effect? That's just one example. So what's the process of sitting down with young people and helping them understand the decision-making process? I would definitely say if you decision-making process, I think it's really sitting down with them and helping them to discover who they are. More self-awareness, more self-discovery, you know, knowing their strengths, knowing their weaknesses, and also where do they see them, their lives in one year or five years. And I think, you know, showing them that this decision can affect what your written plan was for yourself if you don't make this other decision. So I think definitely sitting down with them and you know, instilling like self-awareness, you know, self-discovery, let's figure out exactly who you are and where you want to be. And then that will definitely aid in some of your decisions. Eric, we follow a similar model there. I mean, that's very well put. We establish a trust-based relationship first. They have to be able to have confidence in us and our consistency in just showing up. I think that once we're able to establish that, then we're able to sit down with them and go through the life mapping you know, where do they want to be in five, 10 years? And then that's on the front end of our programming. One of the first steps that they take is, is to fill out that life map, that path to success that they see for themselves. And our life coaches are then able to utilize that throughout the entire program to kind of reinforce these good and dis- bad decisions and whether or not they're in line with the accomplishments that they want to achieve. So yeah, I think it's, you know, one, it's building that trust and rapport and through consistency. And and then once you're able to do that, you've got that line of communication open that allows all of the the whole relationship to flourish and with good and bad decisions being the focus throughout, whether they're implicit or explicitly, you know, addressed, that's between the coach and the youth. But I think from our end, I'd like for all of our staff to always have that in the back of their mind that there's learning opportunities in every conversation. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Irving. Yeah, so I was just going to go on that as well a little bit. You know, part of the the process of understanding how to make good or bad decisions in general, I think first off is giving the opportunity for the person to understand what decision needs to be made. Because I think depending on who you're talking to, let's say if I'm talking to one of my siblings, one of my brothers that has not had a good path with relationships, I'm not preferably going to ask him for advice about relationships. I'm going to ask somebody that's probably been in a long-term relationship. So the decisions that I'm making are also a part of what kind of advice do I want to receive? What kind of feedback do I want to receive? Which is not always just one person. It requires a whole community to be able to have that opportunity to say, this is the path I'm going to take. And I am willing to withstand every failure, quote unquote, that I take that comes with it, every speed bump, every blunder, every challenge that comes with this decision that I'm making, because it's wholeheartedly, I know what the outcome is going to be. And that's the outcome that I want. And giving that perspective of that's the outcome, but the road might be muddy, it might be bumpy, there might be speed bumps, there might be all these things, and just making that clear for that decision, and giving that power to that person. But going back to what I said earlier, if you're in that survival mode, that sometimes is a hard process to do, right? Understanding this long-term thing when you want a quicker turnaround on something. 
So sometimes the decisions that are made are for that quicker turnaround, which are not necessarily bad, particularly if they meet the need of the person. But if that's just decision one to get to the point of making a longer term decision, then that's also great, right? We can't just make the long term decision and still have the person not meet their basic needs because then that vision to that goal is not going to last. And then the sense of actual failure is going to be inserted in that individual. And this is something that I observed in my own and with the people that we serve as well. It's a balance between short-term and long-term decision-making. It's immediate needs versus your life goals. And how do you, how do you make them both happen? Mm-hmm. So how do you help a young person understand what a good decision is? A good decision for one young person is not necessarily a good decision for some other young person. It's more of an art than a science, but how do we help young people understand that? I think I'll kind of continue with my original or the previous question. It's just really self-awareness. You know, how does it feel to you? You know, when you see this decision and you decide to choose it, is that really how you truly feel? 110%, you know, you're definitely definite. But I think just allow them to really express, is it 50% okay or is it 110% like this is how I feel? I feel great about it. And I think it's going to you know, improve my life tremendously. So I think bringing it back to them and for them to really feel like how they really feel about making that decision. My approach here is, you know, obviously this is something that is going to be discussed with us through the programming and just in, you know, conversations with the youth. But I like to let it happen or occur a little naturally without putting a specific focus on whether there's not a decision is being made. and then whether or not a good or bad decision is made. I mean, there are some life milestones and decisions that have to be made that we want to have a specific conversation about. But the day-to-day, I think, is something that we would help, you know, more to occur naturally. And then as we see those natural progressions of decisions, reinforcing the good ones, and then kind of addressing the bad ones, again, not in a negative take two steps back approach, but just You know, how could we have addressed that issue differently and made the outcome better for you? I've got a two-year-old at home, and so I hate to kind of compare the two, but as I'm speaking this out, it's kind of similar in that regard that you don't want to control the narrative as someone that's working with the youth. You want to allow them the freedom and flexibility to make their decisions, but hopefully they've got the trust in you to come to us when those really drastic important decisions are being made so that we can talk those out. Yeah, I do want to touch a little bit on this one a little further. So one of the things that we practice here at Just in Time in general that we've realized it's a great benefit, we originally started it off with our volunteers, which is this idea of viewing our participants and everybody really as creative, resourceful, and whole. The reason behind that is because we have the answers to the choices and decisions we need to make, but sometimes it's our self-limiting beliefs, our constant lack of voice, that we tell ourselves that that might not be the right one or the correct one or the good one, whatever word we want to use. Because like what was mentioned, whatever decision might be good for one person, that might not be the case for another person. So it's very individualized. So one of the things that is the most beneficial is not to be the person making the decision for them, but consistently teaching the person to go through the process of making that decision, understanding that maybe there could be a bigger consequences for a choice that you're going to make, that sometimes our limiting beliefs start to invade our brain. Oh, I shouldn't do this because of that. I shouldn't do that because of this. 
But internally, we know that answer. We know what we want to do. We know what we think is best for us or what is good for us. It's just sometimes that negative self-talk, that negative pattern of thinking can cause us to not go in the direction that we truly believe. I agree with that. And I think that there's so much about the self-awareness that Erica was talking about that goes into that. Yes, we know what's best for us, but we also have to have information in order to make the decisions about what's best for us. So I think there's also a component of helping young people understand how to gather information that will inform what it is that is good for them. Information about themselves? Information about life that informs who they are. So you might feel like you want to do something in life because you've never heard of this other career. And then you find out about this other career and then you're like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I want to do. So we can only have knowledge of what it is that we want in life and what's good for us when we have a nice clear picture and have the information to be able to to get to those conclusions. So I think that there's a balance there with finding information, researching, learning about life, watching mentors, learning from mentors and so forth. It's in us to make the right decisions, but we also have to go and learn about life in order to help us understand what's good for us. I hope that's clear. Yeah. I think I got what you're saying. It's almost like a quote unquote job shadow for life. It's like, you know what? I want to be an engineer. Okay. You see what they do, but then we actually go and observe an engineer. You see, you know, the long hours, 6 a.m., the computers, all the different graphs and whatever they have to do to to be that person. And they're like, wait a minute, I don't think I have that in me. I don't even like computers like that. So maybe I'll (laughs) change my, you know, change my occupation. So I think of like, I mean, I do activities with my youth at the tree of life. So, you know, whatever you want to be, you put that in the trunk and then your roots are what all you need to become this person. And then, you know, the branches are what flourishes from that. Well, then once they see the roots and all of the, you know, dedication, the hard work, you know, the schooling, the people that you need, support systems, they're like, wait a minute. You know, maybe this is not the right path for me. So I think that also helps in aiding decisions is if they see this, you know, kind of overall picture of their life and they realize, well, this avenue, this is all I need. This is all of what I need to get, to do to get there. But on this other decision, this is more of myself. I self-aware, I took a self-assessment and, you know, plan A looks a little bit better than plan B. So I definitely understand what you were saying. Well, let me ask this question. I want to come back around to, Erica, something you said at the beginning You had mentioned helping youth understand choices, decisions, and commitments. Could you go into that a little bit, the differences between those and how you use those concepts? Oh, sure. You know, with choices, say you have apples and oranges. Okay. So that's just, that's only the choices that you have in front of you. But your decision is you chose the apple because you don't like oranges. Well, your commitment is I don't eat apples or oranges. So I'm going to stick to my commitment and only eating bananas. So I help you in decision-making, you know, learn the difference between a choice. You know, you have two choices, but you don't always have to take those. It's what you like and it's what you want. You know, you have a decision. Okay, yeah, I can go with that, but I'm still not 100%. I'm just doing it because it's right there. But you're committed to what you like and what you need for your life. So those are my three different ways I try to describe or just, you know, Mm. to paint the picture of decision-making. Yeah, I like that. I like the differentiation there. What do you think about that? Irving and Ben. Do you have anything kind of similar, a model like that? No, I'm intrigued by it. I'd like to dig in a little bit further because you think of a choice, you think you've got to make one, you know, choose one or the other. So Erica, I appreciate the kind of the eye-opening for me that, hey, 
maybe I don't need to make a choice. Maybe I can just stay static where I'm at and a different option may come available in the future. Absolutely. So that, I don't know, for me, that's eye-opening. And I think that that could, that could be helpful as well in the process that we you know, work with our youth under. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, that's my thought on there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it really, it makes you break it down more. And then, like I said, it, it's eye-opening for us as adults as well. We, you know, we make our decisions, but then we remember that we do have a choice. And then, but our commitment is 110% of what we truly want and what's truly good for us. Like we are committed to that and that only. So those choices, those decisions, they don't have to come. You know, it's almost like you pass the first street. Ah, okay. But the second street may lead you to, you know, the, the expressway. I don't know. But it just, yeah. <laughs> you know, it helps you break it down a little bit farther. I think not choosing is a decision, right? So you have a piece of cake and you have a piece of pie in front of you. And you have a commitment to try to lose weight. Exactly. <laughs> so your decision might be, I'm not going to choose one of those. So that would be your third choice is to not actually get one. Right. And I'm going to commit to eating this apple when I get in the car, but I'm going to really think about eating that piece of pie. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Irving, what do you think about that? The choice decision versus commitment? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that idea particularly the choice of the apple versus, <laughs> was it the apple <laughs> versus, uh, I, I don't the remember orange. the fruit, orange, apples versus the orange, you know, and one of the things that we spent a lot of time in is to this point of bridging that difference of that internal and also the actual tangibles is providing the awareness of all the fruits that exist. These are all of the fruits that exist to you. You can make a choice based on these fruits, or you can choose a vegetable, Right depending on what that is. So that's essentially one of the stepping stones that we start with because the majority, if I use an actual example, you know, the majority of us that have experienced care, we have a very similar educational and career path, which is law enforcement, some form of law enforcement, justice involved, either a social worker or some form of therapist, a psychologist, so on and so forth, because those are the people that we've been around. That's the only thing we've been exposed to. So we think that those are the three choices that we have to make. But if we're not aware of all these other possibilities that we can be a part of, but also believe that we can be aware of more, right? It's a two-pronged approach, right? You need to provide the awareness, but also provide that, what we've been talking about since the beginning, that opportunity to become self-aware or let out that self-awareness that you do have and just kind of expose yourself to more choices that you can make throughout your life. Mm-hmm. I think there's a skill to be built with the adults who work with these young people to identify the opportunities for these conversations. And to what Ben was saying earlier, to have them in a natural way, just in the flow of how decisions are coming about and how you know the consequences are coming about naturally. I think that's a real skill to be able to recognize those opportunities to help teach, but make it feel like just a conversation. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of the a big outlook or out approach of what our life coaches do through our life strengths program is, you know, it's conversation, it's relationally based. We have a curriculum that we use, but it doesn't determine the weekly sessions that our kids are involved in. There's a lot of discretion used by our life coaches on how to accomplish our mission and how to you know, motivate the youth that we work with to make these decisions and to think about them beforehand and 
we find a lot of success through that approach. It's not a rigid, strict, you know, there's not a timeline on it. It's just their own pace and what life experiences they're having and, and are available to them. You know, there's a lot of opportunities out there for growth and development just, you know, day to day. And so we let those occur and, you know, having pretty good success with it. That's great. Well, let me ask this question now. What influences a young person's decision-making? So I know there are internal influences, there are external influences. Let's talk about that a little bit. What are the different competing influences, we'll say, on youth's decision-making, and how can adults help that young person steer their way through those influences? Just to start is, I mean, social media is a huge distraction, and I think a lot of you know, you see a different path for their life, but then they also see, okay, in five years, you know, what am I going to be doing? Do I want to put in the work to become this occupation or this person? But they see that the instant gratification. And I think there's so much trauma and it's, I mean, so much just ingested on social media. I think it affects the decision making. If you have a solid decision you want to make that morning and then you're going to call, you're committed. But then at 12 o'clock at lunchtime, you go on social media and you see, you know, you go on for an hour, you see all these other influences, it could easily sway, you know, some decisions you want to make. Yeah. Yeah. Let me throw this out there just before I give Ben and Irving a chance to talk. I heard even just this morning that the poll came out recently that 25% of Gen Zers want to become online influencers as a job, as a career. 25%. That's crazy. That is. (laughs) Not surprising, I guess, because that's what they know. And that's the influence that social media has is, you know, I wanted to be a professional football player or baseball player, but that's what I saw on TV when I was young, right? Not that I ever really thought that I would be able to accomplish that. I can make the the big difference there between what we're talking about now, you know, with the Gen Zers, but um, that's a large percentage of youth that are that are out there. And I don't know, maybe it's my generation. I just, <laughs> and you know, that may be a legitimate profession as it establishes itself and as society kind of adapts to it. Mm-hmm. It's just hard for me to kind of wrap my head around. I equate it with my niece wanting to be on Broadway, yeah. right? And she's a good singer. The conversation that my sister and I had with her is, okay, let's talk about how you can get there but let's have a backup plan, (laughs) right? Right. Because the percentage of people who become Broadway stars, very small compared to everyone who wants to be. Same thing with social influencers, so online influencers. Very small percentage of the people are actually going to make it. So let's talk to them about that goal. I think there's probably some, certainly some merit in the skill set, but let's have a backup plan. Right. Yeah. I'll say like, I wanted to play professional sports. And when I did the numbers, you know, it's like you have, you know, for now, say if one person wants to make it to the NBA, well, there's 700,000 athletes who apply for the draft and then maybe 100, you know, get picked. So if you put the numbers and I'm pretty, yeah, eventually there'll be influencer numbers. Only 3%, you know, or 2% are going to actually make it and be successful. So I guess if you pair it and actually they can see are you one in 700,000? Ah, and it, you know, half of you all are doing the same content. It's not going to work out. You'll just be another, you know, fish in the sea. I was just going to ask a question to Erica and then kind of bridge my question towards something I want to emphasize. But Erica, what made you want to be an athlete? Well, it was definitely, I mean, what I saw. And I think when you grow up in a, 
kind of a sports world, that's what's pushed. You know, if you play high school sports, you play AAU sports, and then you start getting recruits from colleges, you're like, well, hey, I'm really good here. So maybe I could go to the NBA, the WNBA. But mine was actually going to be overseas professionally. But then I looked at the numbers and I'm like, well, okay, I definitely can't. I'm not that great. I'm good, but I'm not that great. So I think it was from what I, that's what I saw. And all of my friends play basketball and all my friends were in other sports. So I think it's the same way with the youth now is they're around everyone who's on social media. They have influencer friends. They start these dance groups or whatever. They start these content making because their friends are doing it, but they don't separate themselves individually and say, well, it's cool, but I think I have another vision for my life. So my other vision was I love animals. So, you know, I'm going to go be a vet. If I can't make it to the WNBA, I'll be a veterinarian. I ask that because I hear one of the things that you're mentioning is that that sense of connection to not just your family, but your surroundings. And also something that was mentioned about social media, right? Social media in general is a sense of false connection, right? It's called social media, but in reality, it's very antisocial. It's about who's doing better, who's doing the best, and then there's a comparison happening. So in reality, the more of a famous or influencing status you have, the less connected you are to others because online you are, but in reality, those connections are becoming more transactional. So to the question, the original question of what external or internal influences, you know, are part of youth decision making is the sense of connection. If I am connected to what I want to do, if it allows me to connect with people that I feel that will satisfy my surroundings, my internal needs, my external needs, that I am going to be committed. And that comes from the experience of being in foster care. Everything that we experience throughout it is disconnection. You get disconnected from your family. You get disconnected from your school. You get disconnected from your peers. Whatever experience you have, there is a sense of disconnection. And as human beings, we want to be close to each other. We want to find, to use this word, a quote-unquote tribe that we belong to. And the only one that we identify is foster youth, which is Sometimes, right? The only ones that we can identify is foster youth, which is inconsistencies, traumas, you know, all viewed as a separate group, as a they, right? All these other things. On top of all the human experiences that we already have, cultural, disability or not, you know, mental health, all these other things that already exist, but we have this other they experience. And all we want is connection. So we see this glorified version of it on social media, which is influencing. But then we also see the downfall of that, right? We see one wrong word and then that person's ostracized. And that is a huge fear. We don't want that. We want a sense of connection. So really, that sense of community, I belong here, not just because I am A or B or because I'm a foster care. I belong here because I truly belong here. And people truly want me here. I feel like people want me here. That really empowers people to make the decisions that are best for them. The feeling of connection you connect with the best relationships, you connect with the best friends, you connect with the best employees, whatever that may be. So that's something that I wanted to highlight based on the external and internal influences question. To spin it maybe slightly differently, it sounds like what you're saying is maybe the biggest barrier for foster youth in making good effective decisions would be a lack of connection or feeling a lack of connection. Correct. Yeah. 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 Feeling a lack of connection. Yeah. Yeah. I think overcoming isolation, right? I mean, that's what we experience with the majority of our youth that have been in foster care for any length of time is that they built up walls naturally, inherently, as any human would to prevent harm and hurt 
And it's overcoming that barrier of isolation, breaking down that wall of isolation to allow them to realize that that connection that Irving's talking about is what we're striving for and that that is normal. With that connection comes, you know, experience, it comes relationships, it comes normalization that allows growth, that allows that development, allows for that youth to be able to have more confidence in the decisions that they're making as, as time goes on. Yeah. And it's something to what you said, Ben, about like building trust. I believe it was you, Ben or Erica, about building trust with those that you work with, right? And the life coaches that build trust with uh, the participants that they work with. And the reality of it that sums it all up that I resonate with that I heard a few years ago was, I'll care what you think until I think that you care. And that's really the reality of it. If we really focus on building that connection, every other aspect of the needs of the person, the skills to build decision-making will come because they're no longer in that survival mode of, I cannot assess if you are truly looking for the best for me or this relationship. Mm -hmm. That's key. I was going to say, just to add into the internal influences, I believe Irving said it earlier about the empowerment. Internal influences is, is internal. You know, if you've had that decision and every decision being made from you since, you know, five years of birth, then you're, you're going to waver you know, internally, am I doing this or do I need to seek validation from somebody else just to make sure that I am making the right decision? So I think definitely empowering, you know, the individual and strengthening them and just growing them up to make, you know, that they are effective decision makers and they do know eventually what's best for their life after all decisions have been made for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I know our time is coming to an end here, but I want to ask one other question, which I think is important. And that is, for the adults who are working with these young people, older youth in foster care or former foster youth, what are underlying assumptions that people often have coming into this kind of work who want to help these young folks? What are some underlying assumptions that they need to set aside in order to truly be helpful for them in making decisions? That every kid is not the same. Yeah, you've got to get to know each youth independently and assess what their experience, what their history is and what their needs are moving forward, whether that's through like a formal assessment or just through a relational approach. I would agree with that, Erica. I think the other thing is working in a nonprofit world, and I hate to have to say it, you know, and I think our program does a really good job of not falling into this example, but from a development perspective, when we are trying to raise money through the community, we rely on... (laughs) on some of the negative labels that we're trying to peel away from the youth that we're working with, right? Yeah. You know, to pull on those heartstrings. And so what we need to not forget or not assume is that all of these youth are helpless, that all of these youth have no semblance of foundation or relationship building skills or whatever X, Y, and Z that we can plug in there. You know, when we go out in the community, we feel that through the relationships and partnerships that we have, you know, that helps support our programming. But from a program side, we can't think that way. These are people. Everybody that we touch is a human being and has innate internal strengths, skills, and abilities. And our job is just to help pull them out of that youth and enhance them and allow them the opportunity to build on those so that they can truly build a legacy of their own or follow through with their God-given abilities and strengths. Yeah, I agree with Ben. 
it's the difference between seeing those of us have experienced care as damaged and broken to seeing us as creative, resourceful, and whole. And then in doing so as well, one of the misconceptions is like being efficient with how quick we solve an issue or we solve a person's problem. But you can't really be efficient with people. You have to be effective and effective takes time. So if you're willing to take the time, that shows a person that you care and you will increasingly be more effective. I like that we're being efficient versus effective. Because you're right, we're not just going to be able to fix this quote-unquote problem or issue in six months or nine months. Everybody needs to realize that this is going to be an ongoing process with anybody. It's not just foster youth or youth in foster care that have experienced their life experience. It's just an ongoing process. And we are just a mere chapter in this youth's life. And hopefully it's a chapter that turns the pages of the book in a different direction for better and for more production and more productivity and interdependence with their community and so forth. Mm -hmm. One assumption that I think some people have, just from my own experience working in in a residential school for at-risk youth, is some people come into this kind of work thinking, oh, well, there must be a five-step process and I can sit down and teach this to young people, right? (laughs) We're going to sit down in a class. We're going to teach decision-making skills like we do at our workplace. And they're going to be able to go off and make great decisions. I think that's another, and it's actually following up what everybody has said is it's a process. It's individualized. It's, it's not just sitting down in a classroom and teaching them a model or a five-step anything. Yeah. That you just really have to understand that it's an art and it's conversations and it's learning about the young person and being there for them. You can't just check boxes. That's no. our philosophy. Yep is that it takes a lot more than putting some outcomes on a piece of paper and, you know, discussing them with them for a couple of weeks and calling it good. You've got to add everything around that a human needs to help support that concept. Just checking a box does not include. Yep, exactly. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to bring us to a close here and call it a day. But I think before we do, just one final round robin Are there any final words of wisdom that you might have for folks who work with these former foster youth or older foster youth in the system who want to help their young people make better decisions, make good decisions for themselves? Any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share? So I'll open it up. I think I'd say just for any individual, you know, working with foster care or foster youth, most importantly, being self-aware of who you are and knowing your why when you enter the field. And taking a step back to think about all the kids are definitely individuals and they all have individual needs, individual desires. And I'll leave you with a quote. It just says, greatness isn't perfection, it's purpose. So knowing your purpose is the key to finding your why. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Excellent. Thanks. I would say that the only thing consistent with working with youth about to age out of the system or have been in foster care or are now aged out of foster care. The only thing that somebody working with these demographic can have that is consistent is themselves. You know, you can't rely on any outside influence but yourself in this and and following through, well, let me back up and being consistent. But you know, and one another thing that we that I heard earlier is, you know, we like to create that trust that sense of relationship and the health of that relationship. And we want to help, right? And we want to follow through with helping with a person's need. What's important though, 
to build that trust so that that both sides are coming at that relationship with an equal standing is to one, call your shot and then follow through. We found that, yeah, that's just something that I heard earlier that we put into practice. It's, I'm going to be here at four o'clock on Wednesday, and we are going to address this employment issue that you have. It's calling the shot first and then following through that helps build that trust, that helps build that confidence in the relationship that's going to open up some vulnerabilities and break down walls so that then we can have honest conversations with these youth about the decisions that they need to make. And they have confidence in us when we're having those conversations. Mm -hmm. The last thing I would say and the recommendation that I would do for anybody that wants to, that is working with the foster youth population or would want to work with the foster youth population is ask them. Ask them what their needs are. They'll tell you. They'll let you know almost immediately. And then you can make decisions on that as to how to be most effective. And also have an, what impact do you want to make in people's lives and make every decision around the impact that you want to make around that person's life. It allows you to be more creative and approach things in a more people-friendly way. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for those words of wisdom and for participating in this podcast interview. I really, really appreciate it. Irving, Ben, and Erica, I thank you so much. And I'll look forward to seeing your organizations as they grow and develop and help these young people. And thank you very much again. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lynn. You're very welcome. All right. For those of you who have listened to the podcast to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. Keep checking back to our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and look for the podcast link. And you can find them there, but you can also find them pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. So thank you very much for listening. Until next time.